After two week break, we're now going back to a series uh, that we began some time ago on singleness, marriage, and parenting. And uh, we're going to close the sermon, the sermon series today, uh, with a sermon on parenting. Um, soon after I walked into church this morning, I saw Avi. I walked up to him, full of tenderness in my heart, and I told Avi, "You're not going to like today's sermon. It's on parenting." Uh, uh, so that's, we're going to be closing this series with a sermon on, on parenting. Um, before we get into the Bible passage we're looking at today, I wanted to take a bit as we close the series to share a couple of thoughts on why did we do this sermon series. Uh, in any church, especially as a church grows, it will have people in all stations of life. Uh, there will be children, there will be singles who are waiting to get married, Uh, There will be singles who prefer not to get married, at least not yet. Uh, There will be couples, there will be widows and widowers, there will be those who are separated, there will be parents of toddlers, there will be parents of teenagers, there will be parents whose children have left home, empty nesters, as they say. Uh, There will be uh, parents praying and waiting for their first child. Uh, There will be grandparents, there will be grandparents in waiting. And as the church matures, it will become a gospel community for people in every station of life. And Jesus is sufficient for us, whatever the station of life we may be in. And a good church, which is the body of Christ, will be a welcoming and a nurturing gospel community for people in every station in life. So a truly good church will be nurturing people in all stations of life. And a church that is truly a gospel community, in a church which is truly a gospel community, it will not just have singles who are friends with singles, young couples who are friends with young couples, Couples who are parents who are friends with couples, other couples who are parents. That's not how gospel community works. In a true gospel community, singles will be greatly, will be great friends and will carry, help carry the burden with married couples. And married couples will be great friends and help carry burden with, with singles. And younger people will share the burden and journey together in love, joy, and great friendship with, with older people. A true gospel community is one where truly we are brothers and sisters in Christ. A true gospel community is one in which our station in life will only be our secondary identity. Our primary identity will be that we are in Christ Jesus. Uh, For a long time, New City was predominantly a church of singles. But now in God's design, we have couples and, and, and parents in various stages of life. And and the love of Christ Jesus must compel us to be a gospel community that embraces people in all seasons of life. And this is one of the reasons we intentionally chose to do in one, to, to address in one sermon series, singleness, dating, marriage, and parenting. We could have done a separate series on each of them, but we did it together just to underscore the fact that we are a gospel community for people in every station in life. And so today, 
as we look at a sermon on parenting, before we move to the sermon, I do want to take a moment to just pause uh, and, and acknowledge that there may be couples, married couples, praying and waiting for their first child. And even as we talk about parenting, we want to acknowledge that reality. We want to acknowledge that there might be people who are praying and waiting on God for their first child. And all I want to say is we want to hope as a community, we want to hope with these couples, we want to grieve with these couples, we want to wait with you, and we want to pray with you. If you are in God's church, you are not alone. A perfect and loving Christ is always with you, and an imperfect community that also loves Christ is also with you. So before we really dive into parenting, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that and to just express our love and, 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 and support that we are standing with you, praying with you, if that's the station in life uh, that God has permitted for you in this season. That said, um, we're going to look at the passage, the Bible passage we're going to be reflecting on, preaching from today. We're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 26. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 26. Allow me to read it out for us. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise wide. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian till Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the, the, this passage does not say a single word about parenting. And yet, this is such a helpful passage to understand the most foundational biblical theology of parenting. And there's a second reason why this passage is extremely helpful in understanding God's 
design for parenting. And here's the reason. Quite often, grace leaves parents confused. How do I apply grace to a two-year-old who's screaming in a tantrum and rolling on the floor in a shopping mall and throwing a tantrum in public? How should I extend grace to an eight-year-old who for the last several months has been finding, finding enormous pleasure in bullying his younger sibling? Should I be all grace to a 15-year-old who's been caught smoking three or four times in the past month? How do I extend grace in these situations? You see, many situations in life leave parents confused about grace. And so the passage we are looking at is extremely helpful in solving this puzzle. I'd like to do three things for us in drawing this passage out. First, I want to explain this passage in its original context as it was intended. Second, I want to apply this passage to parenting and to build a gospel framework for parenting. And third, I want to quickly draw three very simple godly guidelines for, for parenting. Explain the church and the, the passage in the original context, apply it to parenting, and, and draw three very simple guidelines on parenting. Let's start with the first, explaining this passage in its original context. In the original context, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, is helping the Galatian church understand the relationship between the law that God gave through his prophet Moses and grace that God gave through his son, Jesus Christ. In the early church, like in parenting today, a lot of people were getting confused between law and grace. And now that there is grace, are there no more rules? Or if, or if some rules still apply, how, how do I extend grace? Most parents would be familiar with this dilemma. And so Paul explains the relationship between the law and grace. And what I've done is I've captured the essence of this passage in a few slides. So first, to begin with, Paul says that God called Abraham and established a covenant of grace with him. The covenant of grace basically spelled out to Abraham that Christ will come to save you from sin, and so salvation is by faith through grace. And so Abraham, and the covenant with Abraham was established, he was told to expect a savior to come, Christ to come. That's how Paul begins this passage. But then, 430 years later, the law was introduced through Moses. And Paul himself, earlier on in this chapter, argues that curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And Paul also says that no one's been saved by obeying the law. Salvation is possible only by grace through faith. And so, when the law came 430 years later, it is very confusing. And so Paul raises and answers the question, why did the law come? Why did God introduce the law through Moses when indeed Christ the Savior who would save everyone through grace was to come later? And so in the passage that we looked at, Paul raises two questions. Why then the law? That's chapter 3 verse 19. And is the law contrary to grace? That's verse 21 in chapter 3. 
And then Paul goes on to give three answers to the question. We saw that in the passage. First he says in verse 19, the law was given to restrain people from sin till Christ came. So law was intermediary. Intermediate, not intermediate. Intermediate. Till Christ came to restrain people from sin. Again, Paul also gave a second reason, which is verse 24. He says the law is a guardian till Christ came. And then in another book called Romans, Paul also says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If there was no law, if there was no absolute moral standard given to us by God, we wouldn't even know we are sinning. There would be no definition of sin. And if we wouldn't even know that we are sinning, why on earth would we need a savior? Why on earth would we turn to Jesus, who's the only one who can save us from our sins? And so as Paul explains this timeline, this interplay between grace and the law, then finally he concludes with verse 25, where he says, now that faith has come, there was a season when Christ had not yet come, where the law was restraining us, the law was guarding us, the law was making us aware of sin, all that was till Christ came. And when Christ came, lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, died a death on the cross, not for his sins, but for ours, and rose again from the dead and gives eternal life to anyone who believes in him. When Christ comes, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 25, the passage we are looking at, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is what Paul is laying out to the church at Galatians. So this is the passage explained in the original context. The second thing I want to do today is to apply this passage to parenting and to build a gospel framework for parenting. As I said, there is not a single word on parenting directly in this passage. But this passage is extremely helpful. I really believe this is the most foundational um, theology, biblical theology of, of parenting. In Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his son. So this passage that we're looking at, all the charts that we, we pulled out from this passage, is how God is parenting his son Israel. Now, if this is how God is parenting his son, surely that can be helpful for us as we draw and develop a gospel framework for parenting. And we can learn, uh, learn from this. And so what I'm going to do is the chart that we looked at, um, we're going to, I'm going to approach it now from a parenting framework. right? So this is the framework that we saw in, in, in the original context. Now let's apply the same framework to parenting. Just as Abraham, when God called Abraham, it was a covenant of grace. When there is a newborn child, a parent's relationship with the child is all grace. The child needs to be fed. There, there is nothing the child can do. The child's uh, uh, ability to reason, uh, analyze has not developed. Understanding has not developed. Emotions has not developed. Intelligence has not developed. So the relationship is completely by grace. But as the child grows, uh, we'll look at 
more of that in a bit. As the child grows, as the child becomes a toddler, there is a need for rules. Imagine trying to teach the Ten Commandments to a one-year-old. You're not going to have much success, right? So, so there is a stage, there is a season in a child's life as his or her emotional capacity, intellectual capacity, spiritual capacity grows there is a season, a stage for rules. And those rules are not the absolute. Those rules are not the ultimate. Those rules are temporary. And those rules exist only till Christ is formed in the child's heart. Only till the child comes to a place where he or she is able to see his or her sin and the Spirit of God regenerates his or her heart to faith in Christ Jesus. So until that time comes, until the child grows and comes to faith in Christ Jesus, the law is going to restrain the child from doing bad things, it's going to guard the child, and it's going to make the child aware of the need for Christ. And, and the rules and, and, and all of that exist only till Christ is formed in the child's heart. And when, the, when, when Christ is fully formed when the, and the child is saved and is being sanctified now by the Holy Spirit, whatever age that may happen, then they no longer need the Lord to be a guardian because they have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, helping them to grow in their sanctification. And so that's the original, what Paul is saying, the original context applied to parenting. Now that's the foundational I wanted to take some time to really lay out for us. Having done that, what I'd like to do now is draw out three very simple basic principles on godly parenting. Three very simple principles. First, godly rules godly discipline, and godly love. Godly rules, godly discipline, and godly love. So let's, let's look at each of these. Let's start with the first, godly rules. How many of you were born believers in Jesus? No one, right? None of us. Kids are also not born mature. Children are not only not born mature, children are also not born morally neutral. Uh, some of us have had the joy of holding a newborn in, in your hands. I remember the first time Aji and I, we experienced this. And so if you go back, or some of, many of us, I hope, will have that joy soon in God's time. When we hold a newborn in our hands, I just want to say one thing you don't get to start with a clean slate. Because sin has already been written in that infant's heart. Because Adam sinned, every human being who has been born ever since has carried the sin of Adam. So every child born is born with a natural predisposition, with a natural inclination to sin. You don't get to start with a clean slate, as, as beautiful as the pretty, uh, uh, as, as your baby might be. Sin has already been written in the child's heart. So from a very early stage, as the child grows, 
from the first time comprehension and understanding begins to form in the child, the child is going to need some rules. Now again, rules, we've, rules when I, every time I say rules, discipline, I want to invite us to see it from the framework we're drawn out. Rules and discipline are temporary till Christ is formed in the heart of the child, just as God said that he gave rules, the law to Israel, temporary till Christ was fully revealed. So I want us to keep that framework in mind. So every child is going to need rules. Rules are a form of grace. There are many types of grace. We tend to think of grace as just one amorphous thing. There are many types of grace. First, there is common grace. Common grace is the grace God extends to all people, Christians or otherwise. The Bible says that God sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. So God, there is a grace, a common grace that is available to all people. And there is a saving grace. Only some people come to faith in Jesus. That's saving grace. That's available only to a few. And there's forgiving grace. When a follower of Christ sins, God forgives. So that's forgiving grace. That's transforming grace or sanctifying grace. Grace that helps us overcome. Grace that gives us power to say no to ungodliness and to pursue the righteousness of Christ with all of our heart. And then there is restraining grace. So the law is actually an expression of God's grace. It's restraining grace because it restrained people from sinning. And so rules in a, in a, in a household established by parents, godly parents who are stewarding their children, God is the ultimate father. And those rules is a form of restraining grace. A household without godly rules is a household without a vital element of grace. Children need godly rules, just as Israel needed the law. Kids, I don't know if you've noticed, kids are also not born with a natural inclination to respect authority. Children are born with a natural bent to disobey and disrespect authority. Try telling a child, don't do this. You'll see different shades of expression. Some will immediately go and do that. Some kids will smile at you, you know, put on their most freddy face and then go and do that. Some kids will go right next to it, try doing it to see your reaction. Based on your reaction, they'll decide whether they're going to do it or not. So children have a natural disposition to, to reject authority. So godly rules and godly authority at home prepare children to live in a world, in a broken world, which desperately needs the restraining grace of God in the form of moral authority established by different people. If your child does not know to respect authority at home, there's no way the child is going to know to respect authority at school. There's no way a child is going to know to accept authority in society. Imagine a society where there are no rules. Imagine you don't have to follow the signal. Red, red green, and orange, they don't matter. Uh, imagine you don't have to pay taxes. Imagine there are no rules. Imagine 
there are no rules that you should go to a restaurant and pay the bill afterwards. Imagine, take a moment to imagine society with no rules. It would, it would descend into chaos and anarchy ending human civilization. Why do nations not go to war? Because there are rules governing territory. And we see when one nation fails to acknowledge and submit to rules, we see chaos, we see wars breaking out. We see people being killed. And so children need rules just as adults we need them in society. Um, you know, on the way back from Malaysia, uh, I was at the airport waiting for my flight back home. And I, ha- I saw this very interesting conversation between a mom and her three-year-old or four-year-old, I'm bad at guessing ages, a young child. So the child had an iPad. And uh, presumably the child had been watching the iPad, I think for five, six hours nonstop. And, and the mom is having a, a, a very thoughtful conversation. Do you know why you sing watching the iPad for so long is so long? Can you think of all the harm that it can do to you? And, and, and the conversation was going on. And the child wasn't bothered by what her mom was saying. The child was bothered by the cartoons on the iPad. And, and the mom tenderly, gently aware that's public. And she knows her child, I'm sure. Tries to take, tried to take the iPad uh, away from the child. That's it. A, a loud scream. And, and, and the tantrum, okay, okay, you keep it back, keep it back, keep it back. <laughs> child-oriented parenting. This child obviously has no idea of rules. I don't know how this child is going to go to school or nursery and, 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 and learn to accept any rules whatsoever. So three ways we can go wrong with parenting. So this is an example of a child-centric parenting. Everything revolves around the child. You ask a two-year-old, do you feel like eating breakfast? Do you feel like eating vegetables for breakfast? No, I feel like eating ice cream for breakfast. If you ask a child, what do you feel like eating for breakfast? The child's going to say, I feel like eating chocolate and ice cream. That's child-centered parenting. Of course, of course, the child should decide for his, herself or himself, but not at age two. Not at age two, when, when the child matures. So that's child-centered parenting. The, the equal and opposite error is parent-centered parent, uh, parenting. Uh, I, I, I was guilty of this. I was over-disciplined as a child. I, I lost my favorite cricket bat because it was broken with my dad beating me. So, so over-discipline, you know, hockey bats, cricket bats, every sport instrument in our home had multiple uses. My dad was a hockey player from the army, you, you know, the combination, right? So, so when, we, when we got married, Aji and I, and we decided to have kids, I said, I'm never going to discipline my children. <laughs> never. Because, see, I was bringing them up not... As God's steward, God appointed steward over them, I was bringing them up based on how I felt I was brought up. See, my parenting them was all about me, not about them. I was beaten, I was, I was, I'm never going to beat my children, right? So, as you all know, my wife is a very wise woman. So the first time she heard about it, she, she smiled and let it pass. The second time she heard about this, she said, no, this is not how we're going to parent our children. 
Uh, and right, and so so I had to go through uh, growing and understanding the role of of, of discipline. So, child centered parenting wrong, parent centered parenting wrong. What we need is Christ centered parenting. You see, the beauty of the framework that we drew out from Galatians three is Christ centered parenting. All of parenting is a journey till Christ is formed in the heart of the child. We can define parenting now with this framework. Parenting is a journey that parents undertake in complete dependence on God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit to ensure that Christ is formed in the hearts of their children. So parents who don't have godly rules till Christ is formed in the hearts of their children are sinning against God and are sinning against their children. If you're a parent, what godly rules do you have for your children? If you're not yet a parent and you're living foolishly like I used to, I will never discipline my child. Uh, time to reform your worldview. So that's the first thing, first practical thing. Every household needs godly rules. Now, what good are rules if you don't enforce them with godly discipline? No rule will count for anything unless it is also accompanied by godly discipline. And that brings us to the second thing, godly discipline. You know, some time ago I was reading an article on parenting from uh, the Gospel Coalition US. And there was this couple and they, the, the, the article began by describing the story of this couple. Uh, this couple had just moved into a new home. They just had a child. The child was a toddler. And in their living room was a nice carpet. Um, it, it was a carpet with, you know, lots of threads hanging out, you know, all of that. And this child, uh, who was still a toddler, decided that he is going to eat carpet for dessert every single day. So ever so often, the child would crawl, child was still crawling, so she would, he or she, I don't know the gender, would, would take the, the, pluck the thread out of the carpet and they would eat it. She would eat it. Sometimes the threads would be really wrong, long. And so it had two dangers. One, the child had, was at high risk of falling sick. People were walking outside and inside with shoes. There was dirt on the floor. You eat that. And carpets have a way of capturing and attracting and holding dirt. And so if the child is going to eat that, it's going to fall sick. And second, there was a real risk of the thread getting caught in the, crow, the throat and the child suffocating, perhaps even to death. And so the parents, loving parents, modern parents, I'm sure, began to reason with the toddler. Don't eat the carpet. Don't eat the carpet, baby. This is not food. This is food. That is not food. Right? And, and nothing worked. And so the, the wife, again, it was the wife who found the wisdom, not the husband. Uh, the wife said, I think we're going to have to spank our baby. Right? And what never worked, one spank, the child went up the carpet and looked at the parents. <laughs> and she put a hand. She got another spank. And that's it. That's all the problem. And the child, in time, learned not to handle, not, not to eat off the carpet. See, at the, there are certain stages in a child's life where understanding is not yet evolved. And the only thing they can understand at that point in time is discipline. That's the only thing a child is capable. I'm not just talking about toddlers. Sometimes even teenagers, the only language they can understand in that moment is discipline. I'm not saying spank your teenager. We'll come to that in a bit. But discipline. 
Godly discipline. Discipline out of love, not out of anger. Discipline as training, correction, protection, not as punishment. Discipline is is very biblical. It is there not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Uh, In the Old Testament, whenever the Bible talks about foolishness, especially in the book of Proverbs, it is referring directly to sin. Foolishness in the Old Testament is sin. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly or foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The Old Testament is full of a call, exhortations on parent, parents to bring their children in godly discipline. The New Testament also speaks about the role of godly discipline in parenting. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline seems unpleasant not only for the child, but also for the parent. It's not easy to discipline our children as parents. It doesn't come easy. Our, our heart breaks up when we, when we do need to discipline our, our children. And as I'm sure the father's heart, but God put holiness, God put character more than just present comfort. A child who is not disciplined, is an unloved child. A child who is not disciplined does not receive the full love of parents that God designed for that child to receive. Again, discipline is not an absolute. Christ being formed in the hearts of the children is the absolute. That's the ultimate goal. But if you remember the framework, till Christ is formed, rules and the law is needed to restrain, to protect, to guard children. And spanking is not the only form of discipline. But discipline, our worldview should not be a worldview where there is no room for spanking at all. Because if you look at the Bible, you you cannot overlook the words, the, the, the amount of references that are into this form of discipline. And when it comes to parenting. So, so, but spanking is not the only form of discipline. As a child grows in understanding and comprehension, uh, the spanking form of discipline must become less and less and less. In fact, the sooner you start spanking as a form of discipline, a child needs spanking as a form of discipline the most when he or she's understanding is not fully formed to, to evaluate That's when a child needs the spanking the most. So the sooner you inculcate godly, loving discipline in this way, the sooner you can stop it. The sooner you can stop it. Generally what plays out is is when parents resort to spanking, it's only because they've lost control of themselves. It's not in discipline, it's not in training, it's in anger. They just keep putting up, keep putting up, keep putting up, keep putting up, and then one day they explode, especially in the, in the, in the Indian, uh, Indian context. So a two-year-old toddler 
who just loves to put his finger into the plug point, you can reason with him only so much. But if he insists on keep putting his finger into the plug point, at great risk to himself, at some point of time, you need to spank him to deter that behavior. That is for his protection. Disciplining a child in this context is not punishing a child, it's protecting a child. But as a child grows, discipline begins to look different and different and different. It's not just spanking. So an eight-year-old toddler bullying his sibling may need an occasional, uh, occasional spanking if, if the behavior is just continues on and on and on repeat, despite repeated warnings. But godly discipline is never about punishment. It is about restraint. It is about protection. It is about training. And so the Gospel Coalition article that I read has this to say. It says, spanking is unpleasant, but it teaches our kids that sin is unpleasant. It shows them in a tangible way how repulsive sin is. If a 13-year-old is spending way too much time online, surely you don't spank him or her, not at 13. But discipline could look like taking away devices for a period of time just to help them understand that till you learn to grow up in maturity to handle the device wisely, we cannot allow you to have the devices, and teenagers throw tantrums in different ways than, than, uh, than toddlers, uh, but, but we still hold strong. A 17-year-old who is kind of continues to smoke up, what would discipline look like for this person? It could mean depriving of him of pocket money. It would be saying that, you know, until you learn to have wisdom, we're not going to give you any discretionary spending money. You definitely don't spank a, a, a 17-year-old. So the older a child grows, discipline becomes different from, from the most basic, most easily understandable form of spanking that's there very early till a child's cognitive and analytical capabilities are formed. Emotional and spiritual capabilities are also formed. But if there's any parent who lives in a utopian world and says, I'm going to bring up my children without ever disciplining them, all I can say is, all the best, good luck to you. It's not going to work. So discipline restrains sin. It guards children. It, it protects children. Discipline prepares the hearts of children to receive Christ. You see, if a child has never been disciplined for sin, the child is never going to understand the reality of hell. If a child has never experienced being punished, not punished, being corrected for wrong, the child is never going to understand that a just and righteous God does have a holy wrath on sin. And if a child doesn't understand sin and punishment and the consequences of sin, a child is never going to feel the need for a savior. So a child without discipline is going to take harder and longer for that child to experience, to receive Christ into his or her heart. There are two risks when it comes to discipline. Disciplining in our anger. As parents, uh, I can assure you, every one of you have sinned like that in the past. You will sin like that, and you are going to sin like that in the future. That's reality. We are broken people. None of us here are perfect parents. And so there are times when we will discipline our child, children in anger. We need to repent when we do that and ask forgiveness from our children. 
when we do that wrongly. That doesn't mean you don't discipline them the next time. Right? Don't let the past guilt of wrong discipline stop you from future discipline. Because you're just sinning in two different ways against your child there. Repent, ask the child's forgiveness, but do not stop. Learn from it and ask God's grace to grow in it. That's the first risk when it comes to discipline. We must be very careful, especially in our cultural context. Second, don't believe discipline will change our child's heart. Discipline will not change a child's heart. Discipline will produce good behavior, but it will not change a child's heart. That's why the law is temporary. The only thing that can change our heart is the love of Christ. And so only godly love, only the love of Jesus Christ expressed to us fully in the gospel can produce in us a good heart. And that brings us to the third and the last simple practical gospel guideline for parenting. Godly love. Godly love. Godly rules, godly discipline are temporary. They are just temporary, just as the law was temporary till Christ was revealed. Godly rules, godly discipline is temporary till Christ is formed in the hearts of our children. Galatians chapter 3.25, we saw that in the framework. Now that faith in Christ has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Law, law was the guardian, as we saw earlier. No longer under rules. Faith in Christ has transformed our hearts. As parents, godly love must motivate us, must, must inspire us, stir us to work hard daily to make sure Christ is formed in the hearts of our children. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, talking in the context of spiritual children, that's another sermon, we, we won't go into that today. We, we, we are all called not to just bear biological children, we are all called to bear and nurture spiritual children as well. And so this verse, and I'm going to read out for us, is Paul speaking in the context of his spiritual children. The same applies to our biological children. This is what Paul says. My little children, for whom... I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying, I'm experiencing the birth pains of a mother about to give birth. And my goal, the reason I'm experiencing these birth pains is I want Christ to be formed in you. You know, as a parent, we don't give birth just once, but we experience birth pains all our lives till Christ is formed in our children. As godly parents, this is what we want the most for our children. See, if your child is on best behavior all his or her life, if the child makes it to Harvard on a full scholarship, if the child becomes a CEO when he's 30, but if Christ is not formed in his or her heart, he's won the whole world but he's lost his soul. There's no eternal life apart from Christ. So our greatest goal as parents, we must desire and do everything we can for the education and all of that, but our greatest goal as parents is to see Christ formed in them. I want to close with this one thought. In every child, in every Christian household, in every child, 
parents are called to fill the 2,000 year gap between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ and now. It is the calling, godly calling and role of parents to embody the gospel to their children. They are supposed to bring home to the hearts of the children the gospel of Christ Jesus. Of course, the spiritual family, the church does that too. And I want to take a moment to just celebrate everyone who's been laboring uh, these past few months to make sure our kids' church, you'll see those updates every week on New City. They're really laboring to make sure Christ is formed in the hearts of our children. But we cannot outsource this to kids' church or Sunday school. The greatest goal, the greatest joy, the greatest privilege of parenting is to embody who Jesus is and what he has done for us to our children in the gospel. I want to close with one thought. Every time you talk about parenting, there are hurts. Maybe we didn't experience good parenting. Maybe for some of us who are older parents, maybe we've not been good parents. Maybe we've messed up. I want to just close by saying that there's no situation that Christ cannot heal. There is no situation that Christ cannot correct. Christ is our hope in life and death. Let us pray. Father, we worship you, Lord. Lord, even as we bring this sermon series to a close, we need you, Lord. We need you as singles. We need you as married couples. We need you as parents. We need you as children. We need you as grandparents. We need you as separated. Whatever station in our life, we know that we need you. And we know Christ is enough. And so, Lord, we pray. May your word, which we have preached faithfully, Lord, build us up, bringing healing into our hearts and power to say no to sin and grow in righteousness. May your word bring all of this into every one of our hearts, irrespective of our station in life. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.